Uh, Let's uh, turn in our Bibles this morning to Mark's Gospel, chapter 15. We're going to cover verses 1 to 20 uh, this morning. I titled the message this morning, Pontius Pilate Faces Jesus. Now what's interesting is that my Bible gives a caption for chapter 15 that Jesus faces Pilate. And I think it's best to flip it around that Pontius Pilate is the one that faces Jesus. And so let's pray. Father, we come before You this morning. And Lord, we're in awe of You. In awe of the work of redemption. In awe of what You accomplished, Lord, that we might live. And Lord, I just pray that our hearts would be stirred with hope Lord, that we would be stirred with an anticipation of someday standing face to face with You. And Lord, as we enter into these next few weeks, talking about Your your death and Your resurrection, Lord, that we might be stirred in our hearts, Lord, to, to be those lights and those witnesses to a dying world. And we thank You for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, it might have been a couple weeks ago, in John, uh, John's Gospel in chapter 11, we read a, a prophecy of, of Caiaphas, the high priest, in verse 49. And it read, And one of them, uh, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider, and this is really a prophecy that he was given as high priest, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say in his own authority, we're told, But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation, speaking of Israel only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. And it's really a prophecy concerning really the work of God and what he would do. But in essence, what this priest was prophesying that in the death of Jesus Christ, that the death of one man would be worth it for the nation of Israel. And in a sense, he was saying the right thing. It would be a benefit really to the Jew and Gentile that Jesus would die. That He would suffer and that He would die. And then it says, then from that day on, they plotted to put Jesus to death. This was all in motion. It was something, as I already shared, that was planned out all the way in eternity of what would transpire and how it would transpire, and there would be nothing that would stop our Lord. We read again in John 8, chapter 18, in verse 12, it says, as Jesus was in the garden, and we've already gone through this, but as Jesus was in the garden that night, we're told that this detachment of troops 
and the captain of the officers of the Jews, they came to arrest Jesus and to bind him. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest at that year. And it says, now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. We see it again. They're speaking of Jesus' time in the garden. And so here's Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, who's giving counsel to the Jews that it's better for one man to die, to die for the people. One man's death, in his perspective, as he spoke this prophecy, one man's death would actually help them in retaining the power, the position, and the prestige as the religious leaders of Israel. It's really what they wanted. It's what they were threatened about, that they would lose their power. We see a lot of that going on today, don't we? People grappling for power. It was no different then. Back in Mark chapter 14, you can look in your Bibles there in verse 1, it says that after two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes, they sought how they might take Jesus by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. This plotting, this planning to take Jesus, to put him to death, it too was in the, the council of heaven that this time would come where they would take the Son of God and they would put him to death by trickery. In Luke 22, verse 1, we read this. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were told they sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Do you see where, where all of this is leading up to this trial that we started last week? We're now in chapter 15 of Mark's Gospel this morning. Jesus has already gone before Annas, the high priest. And then he was sent over to Caiaphas, who was the current high priest, the son-in-law of Annas. Annas must have still been a respected man, even though he didn't hold that office of high priest. He was a respected man in the day. Jesus stood before Annas. Jesus stood before Caiaphas this night. Remember, it went pretty much through the whole night, that Jesus was standing trial, that they were looking, and in a sense, it was a secret trial, as I shared. It was an unlawful trial in the way that they held it, in the way that they questioned him, in their mocking and the beating that they put upon the Lord. These were the religious leaders that were doing this to, to Jesus and then we're told in chapter 15, verse 1, it says, immediately in the morning, or we might say at dawn. 
the chief priest, we're told, they held a consultation, a long night of Jesus standing before them, questioning Jesus. These elders, we're told, the scribes, the whole council, the 71 men that made up the Sanhedrin, all of them standing, and Jesus standing before them in this unlawful trial. And it says that at dawn, in the early morning, they bound Jesus and they led him away and they delivered him to Pilate. This was going to be something that they were setting the stage for, but they knew that they couldn't do the dirty work. They knew that they didn't have the right to have Jesus put to death. This meeting, this trickery, this plotting, this planning was something that they spent some time. When they had that consultation meeting, they came together as a group of religious men to talk about what was going to happen going forward. They were going to make sure that Jesus was not going to be able to escape death this time. But what they didn't know was that Jesus had come to his hour. He'd come to this very moment. And he came into this place without any resistance. He didn't come kicking and screaming. They didn't have to force him. Though they had him bound, he would have walked with them freely, even if he wasn't bound, with no resistance. He allowed them to arrest him in the garden. He allowed them to, to, to put the handcuffs on, so to speak, and to bind him. And he stood there before them with no... He wasn't going to run away. He wasn't looking for an escape route. He wasn't even going to really defend himself before them unless they put him into a place where he must answer a question. He was silent often before them. He stood trial that night before these religious leaders But in fact, they were the ones who were really on trial. These priests, these religious leaders that had a lot of power and authority amongst their people, they had no authority over the Romans. The Romans were the ones who ruled. The Romans were the ones who executed judgment. They would listen to their whatever they came up with against Jesus, but they had no right to execute. And so they knew that they were going to have to come in with lies. They knew that they were going to have to come in with something that would rile up the Romans' authorities to have Jesus put to death. We already read in Mark 14.60, it says that the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? Asking Jesus that question. Why is it these men testify against you? But we're told that Jesus kept silent. 
And he answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked Jesus, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. We read on that the high priest at that moment, he tore his clothes in blasphemy. This is what he was looking for. He was trying to find something that he could accuse Jesus of. And we're told that they all condemned Jesus to be deserving of death. Just over those words. Then some began to spit on him and blindfold him and beat on him and say to him, prophesy Jesus. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Jesus has already been condemned to death by the Jewish court. He's now going to be led away from their presence by them to the Roman governor, Pilate. Every detail that was transpiring this night and going forward, every detail of Jesus being the sacrificial lamb, the perfect spotless male lamb, was being fulfilled. Yet these religious leaders, they stood before Jesus with hearts of unbelief. They didn't see it. They couldn't see it. You see, if a person is set on unbelief, they can't see, they can't perceive, they can't understand spiritual things. That's the same today as it was then. But we read in the book of Exodus, going back to the Old Testament law, in Exodus 29, verse 38, concerning the sacrificial lambs, that's plural. Now, this is what you shall, and this is how it reads. Now, this is what you shall offer on the altar. This was instructions to the nation of Israel concerning the sacrificial lambs. Two lambs of the first year, day by day continually, one lamb you shall offer in the morning. Jesus is now going before Pilate early in the morning at dawn. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. With one lamb you shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of pressed oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering. These were all instructions to the nation of Israel of how they were to approach these feasts and the sacrificial lamb. And the other lamb, we're told in verse 41, you shall offer at twilight. And you shall offer with it the grain of offering and the drink offering as in the morning. Speaking about the first lamb. For a sweet aroma an offering made by fire to the Lord. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak with you. Those were the instructions that were given to the nation of Israel concerning the sacrificial lamb. At dawn, 
early in the morning. Caiaphas had essentially selected Jesus for that daily sacrifice. The perfect male lamb. The first lamb that was brought out as the temple gates were opened in that early dawn. The first hour, they would take that lamb and tie that lamb to the altar, according to the Mishnah, which was the oral law for the Jews. In verse 1, we're told, they bound Jesus, and they led him away, and they delivered him to Pilate. We're told also that, and we'll get to this next week, that at nine o'clock in the morning, the third hour, it's also referred to as, the first lamb is sacrificed. You read that also in the Mishnah. According to Mark 15.25, Jesus went to the cross at the third hour at 9 o'clock in the morning. It reads in Mark 15.25, Now it was the third hour, and they crucified Jesus. At noontime, the sixth hour of the day, the second lamb is brought out and tied to the altar. We read in Luke 23.44, As Jesus hung there on the cross, now it was about the sixth hour, It was noontime now, and there was darkness that came over all the earth until the ninth hour as Jesus was hanging there on the cross. At the third or the ninth hour, or at three o'clock in the afternoon, the second lamb was sacrificed. According to Luke's gospel, he gave up his life. Jesus did on the cross in the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. All of this was something looking forward from the Old Testament picture, what they all looking forward to this time where the sacrificial lamb, the last lamb that was going to be slain, would be taken to that cross. We read in Luke 23 46. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, He said, Father, into Your hands I commit My spirit. Having said this, we're told that He breathed His last. We're going to look at that in more detail next week. But I just think it's interesting to see how this night is progressing. As Jesus leaves these religious leaders, or they take Him bound, and they lead Him out, to take him to Pontius Pilate. Jesus is now sent to Pilate who resides in the Praetorium. The Praetorium, we might have a picture of that. The Praetorium was a building, uh, a garrison, a, a, a place up on the Temple Mount where the Roman soldiers could have an eye shot of the whole Temple Mount. 
They were there to keep any insurrection from happening. Uh, you can see the, the little p pillars up the front. That was the Praetorium Guard. It's where, it's where they resided. It's, it was the actual residence of Pontius Pilate, as well as the garrison, these Roman soldiers that were housed in those buildings. We're told that at dawn, the high priest that had taken Jesus, really, and, and made him that, taken him out and taken him to this garrison, that he had made him the daily sacrifice. Jesus now comes to the praetorium. But we read in John chapter 18, verse 28, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Praetorium, and it was early morning. But we're told, but they themselves, speaking about these religious leaders, they did not go into the Praetorium lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. You see, these religious leaders, they were concerned about going into a Gentile Roman Praetorium where they might be defiled that would keep them from participating in the feast going forward that day lest they should be defiled. This wasn't speaking of that ritual supper that Jesus and all the Jews had that evening. This was speaking about the temple service, the peace offering, the Passover that would continue on in that day, and they needed to be, remain clean. These religious leaders that wanted to have Jesus, they, they stood on the outside. Pilate came to a place where he could visibly see all of these religious leaders that were standing there. And it says, when they brought Jesus to the Praetorium, we read in verse 29, that Pilate then went out to them. They all stayed outside. Pilate went out to them and said this to the religious leaders. What accusations do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. It's not lawful for us. We never would have brought him here before you if he didn't do anything unlawful. It's why we're here. You see, they're trying to convince Pilate they're going to try and convince him that he's worthy of death. In Luke 23.1, we read that the whole multitude of them, they arose and they led him to Pilate. The chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the whole council, they all delivered Jesus to Pilate. It wasn't just one. They were all around him. They all came forth with him. 
In our text in verse 2, Pilate asks, he asks, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered and said to him, it is as you say. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't answer with a yes and a no. He just simply says, it's as you say. As Jesus stood there before them all, these chief priests were told in verse 3, then the chief priest accused him of many things. But look what it says. But he answered nothing. Standing before his accusers, and he answers nothing. Like what we read in Isaiah 53, he opened not his mouth. In Luke 23, verse 2, it says, they began to accuse him, saying, we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. They knew all the buzzwords. They knew what they could say to Pilate. Taxes? King? I mean, this they knew. And these were lies. Though he was a king. And though he did pay taxes. You see, Jesus never violated the law. But they were trying to find something that would condemn him to death. Then Pilate answered in verse 4, Pilate asked him, excuse me, in verse 4 again, saying, do you answer nothing? In other words, they're accusing you, Jesus. Look what they're saying against you. Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? I think Pilate was amazed at what he was not hearing from Jesus. It's not what typically somebody that's arrested and brought before him, they would be pleading their case. Verse 5, but Jesus still answered nothing. And then look what it says. So that Pilate marveled. Matthew tells us of this account that he marveled greatly. He was blown away. He's not even trying to defend these accusations. He's not even opening his mouth to defend himself. Who is this? I have to think that Pilate was thinking in his mind, who is this man? He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53 7. In John's Gospel, in chapter 18, verse 29, we're told then Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to them, 
you take him and judge him according to your law then. And therefore the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke signifying what death he would die. Then Pilate, we're told, entered into the Praetorium. He went back inside again, and he called Jesus to come to him. And he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? He's having a little private conversation with Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? He's, remember, he's marveling at Jesus. Jesus answers him, are you speaking for yourself about this? And listen to how he, Jesus, are you speaking of yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate had to think on that. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you, Jesus, to me. What have you done? He asked Jesus. And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate, we're told, therefore, says to him, are you a king then? Jesus, are you a king then? And Jesus answered, you say rightly that I'm a king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he said this, we're told that he went out again to the Jews and he said to them, I don't find any fault with him. My conclusion after speaking to him Face to face, I can't find any fault with him at all. That's coming from the governor, from Pilate, to the religious leaders. This is making them nervous. I can't even find any fault with the man. In Luke 23, 4, it says, So Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no fault in this man, but we're told, but they were more fierce, saying, he stirs up the people, Pilate, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Oh, they were nervous. They're going to they're stir up the crowd now. They're going to get the crowd to turn against Pilate. Another fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm 35.11 says, Fierce witnesses rise up. They grew more fierce against Him. 
They weren't going to lose this battle for His death. But as soon as they mentioned the word Galilee, Remember, Pilate was in Judea. As soon as he heard the word Galilee, the place where Jesus spent two years with His disciples in ministry, this was going to be an opportunity for Pilate. Maybe to get out of this encounter that he had with these religious leaders. Mark doesn't give us this, but we read in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 23, verse 6, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man, that's capitalized, were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, then he sent Jesus to Herod. This is my way out. I'll send him over to Herod. Because we're told here in Luke's Gospel that Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at this feast time. And when Herod saw Jesus, we're told, he was exceedingly glad. There's something about this. I love when we read this because... You just see something about the heart of man, the mankind. When Herod sees Jesus standing there, he had never seen him before. We're told he was exceedingly glad to see Jesus. Sounds good, doesn't it? For he desired for a long time to see him, but he had heard many things about Jesus and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Can you do a miracle right now? You know, like, can you do something in front of me right now? I've, I've heard about all these miracles. When you were up there in Galilee for those, man, I heard it was going all over the place. I'd love to see one of your miracles right now, Jesus. That's what Herod wanted to see. Obviously, Jesus isn't going to do that. He's not going to bend to the request. He doesn't need to. His hour had come. Jesus stands there before Herod. And we're told in verse 9 that He questioned Him with many words. But He answered Him nothing. Here it is again. He answers Him nothing. And the chief priests and the scribes were told that they stood and they vehemently accused him. And then Herod, with his men of war, were told they treated Jesus with contempt and they mocked him. And, and Herod even uh, allowed him or, or maybe uh, told him to go put on one of these gorgeous robes upon Jesus' shoulders. And now, send him back to Pilate. I think Pilate was hoping he was going to deal with this, and he wouldn't have to. But what's so interesting, we read in verse 12, that very day Pilate and Herod became friends with each other. For previously, they had been at enmity with each other. It brought them together. 
Two sinners coming together, becoming friends over Jesus. So Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate, and we read back in our text in verse 6. Now at the feast, this is Passover feast, Pilate was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested, to give clemency, to let somebody go free. To, be, to do this at the time of the, the Passover, it was a gesture to keep, you know, he was, uh, uh, they were always trying to keep peace and keep the right between the Jews and the Romans. They didn't want him rising up. You know, you know, the, here's a little gesture. And at your request, there was one that was there that was named Barabbas. Barabbas, we're told, he was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. These were a group of men that were rising up in a rebellion against Rome. Barabbas, maybe one who was carrying around one of those daggers looking for opportunity to take out a Roman. And he had his fellow rebels that were there with him. Barabbas, a murderer. One that had created civil unrest. A rebellion rising up against Rome. You see, these men were violent men. They were fanatical nationalists, we might call them. And here they are, and here's, this, here's this, these men, Barabbas and those tied with him, standing next to Jesus. What a contrast. Standing next to the spotless Son of God. Here's Barabbas and his fellow workers. What a contrast. Which one do you want? Who do you want? Then the multitude in verse 8, they begin to cry aloud. They begin to ask Him to do just as He had always done for them. Pilate, every year you let us make the choice who you're going to release. They're crying out with loud voices. In other words, they're yelling up to Pilate for the prisoner to be released. They knew the custom. They knew this happened year after year. They knew that it was of their choosing. When the wicked intents of a man's heart are set, They're set. They had every intention of seeing Jesus put to death. Even if it meant releasing Barabbas in place of him. Here you have the perfect Lamb of God 
standing there. And then you have these men of war, men of blood, standing next to Him. I mean, it would seem real logical, wouldn't it? Who should be set free? Who didn't deserve to be standing there? We can't even find any fault with Him. That's what Pilate said. He knew that he was in a predicament. Verse 10 says, For Pilate knew that the chief priest had handed him over. And look what it says. He already knew. Here's one sinner looking at these other men and saying, you've done it for envy. In other words, you did it for sheer malice that you've handed him over to me. He could see through these religious leaders. You see, malice means the desire to see another experience pain, injury, or distress. That was the intent of their heart towards the Lord. Malice. It's within sight of a man's heart. Again, the chief priests could see Pilate's resistance to their demands. But the chief priests were told they stirred up the crowd. I, I think Pilate stood there and they, they, they sensed that he was not on board with this, of who they were going to call to be released. Pilate and these chief priests now wanting to stir the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them. They knew that Pilate, like a lot of the the Romans, they wanted to try and control the people. Keep them under control. They didn't like, Pilate would not have wanted an uprising. That wouldn't have looked good for him. He wanted to keep the crowds under control. And when it came down to it, it was more about crowd control than it was about truth. That it was more about crowd control than justice being done. We're told that they stirred up the crowd. Not much different today, is it? Just turn on your news. And see how people are out there doing what they're doing now. In society today, and they're actually moving the decision makers in government by creating violence, by doing, you know, that's what they do. The wicked hearts of men today are no different than then. It's getting what you want done. And if it means violence to do it, a mob doing it, then so be it. Pilate answers in verse 12, and he says to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call 
the king of the Jews. So the multitude, we're told in verse 13, cried out again, crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, crucify him. So Pilate wanting to, here it is, gratify the people. Gratify the crowd. Sounds like a good politician. Released Barabbas to them. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. This is just the prelude to the cross. But there was something more in Pilate's mind that was going on because I think that he was hoping that if I just scourge Jesus, it'll satisfy him. To scourge a man was brutal. And even that often cost them their life. Even if they made it to the cross, it would cost them their life just by the scourging. Maybe if I just scourge him, that'll satisfy this mob. Scourging was a whip. It was an instrument of punishment. They had a way of bending the person and binding the person so their back would be exposed. Leather strips embedded with pieces of lead and sharpened bone would be attached to that whip. Most And a lot of them never even made it past scourging. Forty lashes minus one for mercy. The Romans were brutal in it. And then we're told, then the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison the whole imperial guard, Roman guard. It was the the headquarters for Pilate in this building. Also his residence. It was known as the common hall up there on the Temple Mount. It was known as the judgment hall. I've been into the ground level where that was. They're pretty confident. I've stood in that place the pavement where Jesus would have been as those Roman guards would have been mocking Him and doing what they did. We're told in verse 17 that they clothed Jesus with purple. They twisted a crown of thorns and they put it on His head. They began to salute Him and and say, Hail, King of the Jews! Here's these Roman guards with Jesus, and they're doing it in jest. They're not doing it like the, the, the religious leaders out there that are looking and plotting for a way to trick Him and kill Him. They're just having fun. They're just doing it what they do. Clothed in purple, this imperial purple, the robe of a king. 
And he was. A twisted crown of thorns on his head. The crown of a king that was often arrayed with rubies around it, but in Jesus' case, as they hit upon his head with that crown of thorns, it would have had drops of blood. They saluted him and they hailed him as king of the Jews. It was, it was like a greeting of a king. And he was. They struck him on the head with a reed. And we're told that they spit on him. And bowing their knee, they worshipped him. They actually got on their knee and they worshipped him. But they did it in hypocrisy. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off of him, they put his clothes on him, and they led him away to be crucified. Can you imagine having that placed on your back after he had been beaten, whipped, and then having cloth placed upon your back? Striking him on the head. They were told in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 27 that they first gave to Jesus this reed to hold like a scepter. They went and grabbed some reeds and they handed it to Jesus so that He would just sit there or stand there, however He was, and hold these reeds like He was a king with a scepter in His hand mocking Him. When they spit upon Him, It's actually better translated, they kept spitting upon Him. They bowed their knee to worship Him so that they might mock Him. And then we're told that they led Him out to be crucified. That was something else that the Romans loved to do. Anybody that was going to go to the cross, it was a spectacle. They would place that cross strategically along a roadside so that every person walking that road would see these criminals hanging on the cross so that they would grip the people's hearts in fear. Don't do something against Rome. They had Him bear the cross, walk the road, bearing the cross, for all to see. That's what our Lord did for us. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. He despised the shame, but He knew there was no other way. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will be done, but Your will. He went as a willing participant. There was no turning back. He was set on the cross. And then even when He was on the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Pretty amazing 
redemption that we have, isn't it? If you're here today and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, wow, how privileged you are when we see so many in this world that are lost without Christ. Living with hearts of unbelief. Unwilling to see, unwilling to yield to the Gospel. Don't need it. You might, I don't. But somehow in God's mercy and grace, He opened your blinded eyes to see. And you have eternal life. And you didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You can't earn it. He just simply did it for you. For me. And as those guards that day as they knelt down and were told they worshipped Him in hypocrisy. They had no clue that the Apostle Paul was going to write a letter to the Philippians in chapter 2. In verse 8 we read, "...and being found in appearance as a man," speaking about Jesus Christ, "...he humbled himself, and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him." and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. There it is. Someday every knee is going to bow of those in heaven, and those on earth, and those under the earth. That means every soul that has ever come into existence every soul that has ever been birthed into this world someday is going to bow down, kneel down before the Lord. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If they would have only believed They could have been saved. Many Jews were. There were many Jews that came to believe that Jesus was their Messiah, the coming One, the One we've been waiting for. And there are Jews today that have been saved. They've come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So gracious our Lord is. So gracious that He would save us Gentiles. Someday we're going to throw our crowns down before the Lord. When we stand before Him at that throne in heaven, we're going we're to take our crowns that are given to us and we're going to cast them at the Lord's feet. But then there's going to come a day for those who don't know Christ. They're going to stand before the Lord at the great white throne judgment. And every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The problem is there won't be a second chance. 
There won't be a time for them to now plead their case. It'll be at the judgment seat of Christ that every knee will bow and every tongue is going to confess, whether they want to or not. I don't want to bow. I don't want to kneel. No, every knee will bow before the Lord. They will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We have a work to do, church. We have a job to do. For whatever reason, in God's counsel in heaven, He says, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and use the church. I'm going to use these mere earthen vessels to go out and be a witness for me. I could use angels, I could do whatever I want, but I I think I'm going to use these earthen vessels to be a witness for me. Don't ask me why he did it. Because to be honest with you, I don't know that the church is doing a great job of it. But each one of us needs to look at ourselves and say, God, what kind of a witness am I being for you? How bold am I being for you? And something even deeper of a question might be, how much do I even believe what I'm reading here this morning? How does it apply to me? And what does it mean to those who don't know Christ? God, would you help us today, tomorrow, this week, until the Lord comes back, that we would be unashamed of our faith, that we would be convinced that the gospel of Jesus Christ is able to save the most wretched sinner because it saved me. Let's, uh, let's have the worship team come up and close us in a song. If you're here and you're maybe feeling like you're short on power, the power that we need to be a witness for Jesus Christ, it comes from above. It's not something you muster up. It's not something you make happen. It's, God, would you lead me and would you give me the power to be a witness for you? Let me tell you that if we all seek to do that, it will cost you. It'll cost you something if you're willing to be a witness for Christ. But the glory, the rewards, what you will receive in heaven will far outweigh it. 